The title for my sermon this evening is They Spoke to the Lord with Stout Words. We're looking at Malachi chapter 3 verses 13 through to 15. During our studies in the book of Malachi, we've already seen quite a lot of back chat from the Jewish priests and the people as a whole to none other than their maker and covenant head, almighty God. Back in chapter 1 and verse 6, the Lord told the priests that they despised his name. Therefore, at that very beginning of this book, in the very first chapter, those words from the Lord spoke volumes about the wickedness in their hearts. A clear example of the blindness and hardness of their hearts can be seen in their response to the Lord. Instead of falling prostrate before him in sackcloth and ashes, they answered him with the following question. Wherein have we despised thy name? That blindness and hardness of heart that dares to respond to God in self-righteous insolence and effrontery can be seen time and again in Malachi. Only last week we saw in chapter 3 and verse 7 that the Lord, instead of consuming the Jews in his sore displeasure, graciously called on them to repent, saying to them, Return unto me, and I will return unto you. However, far from repenting, they said, Wherein shall we return? I don't know if you think that that was a reasonable question for them to ask, Wherein shall we return? Calvin most certainly didn't think it was a reasonable question. John Calvin, that is. He said, it is an evidence of perverseness when men answer that they see not that they have erred and that hence <clears throat> conversion is to no purpose required of them. For this is the meaning of these words, wherein shall we return? The very fact that they didn't understand that there was, that they needed to return, to repent, that shows the depravity of the heart. Coming to today's considerations, it's written in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 13. Your words have been stout or harsh against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Or what have we spoken against thee? In that verse, we can see the Jews speaking to the Lord with what is described as stout words. This is one of those occasions where I reach for the concordance to find out what actually, what does stout really mean. The Hebrew word that has been translated stout is hazak. To give you some idea what it means, that same word is translated hardened when used to describe Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus, in connection with Pharaoh refusing to release Israel from slavery to worship God. For me, the clearest example of the hardness, the, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart was when Moses and his brother Aaron went to him and they said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Jehovah God, 
Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. That ought to be enough really, shouldn't it? If that, if you're told that, let my people go, that saith the Lord of hosts, that ought to be the end of the matter. However, Pharaoh is on record in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2 as saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. The creature shouldn't even think to say such words against the Lord, against his maker, almighty God. That kind of attitude can only proceed from a heart that is hardened as with a callous. And this is what is meant when we see that in in Malachi chapter 3 verse 13, your words have been stout against me. It speaks of hearts that are hardened as with a callous. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 13, the people said to the Lord, what have we spoken against thee? Can you see how they seem to have no fear of God and no awareness of the stoutness of their words and of their hearts? That in itself speaks volumes about the hardness within them and their irreverence towards almighty God. Let's have a look at verse 14. Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? The Lord pointed out to the Jews that they had said those things, that they had said, it is vain to serve God. This is what the Jews had said. And God's reminding them of this. And they said, what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? What profit is it that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? As far as they were concerned, the Lord favoured the wicked Gentile nations and therefore it made no sense to them to serve God. They were wasting their time. They had already moaned to God about the Gentiles and what and what they in their own wicked hearts and twisted minds perceived to be God's preferential treatment towards the pagan nations. Just look back at chapter 2 and verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in him. Or where is the God of judgment? That kind of attitude of heart and use of such arrogant language against Almighty God, it did define the Jews throughout the history with all their complaining, all their moaning, all their answering back, Against who? Against the Lord of hosts. For example, no sooner had God delivered them with outstretched arms from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They went through the Red Sea 
um, the, the Red Sea was separated and they went through that sea. What happened? They complained because they had no water to drink. They complained about the bread from heaven. And when the twelve spies were sent into the promised land and they came back and ten of those twelve spies came back with a, a, a very bad report, a negative report about what they'd seen in the promised land. And what happened then? They started moaning and complaining again. And for their moaning and complaining, God rewarded them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they took possession of the land. And out of the generation that left Egypt, only two of that generation entered into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. All of the rest of them, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. With reference to that, the Lord said in Psalm 95 verses 8 through to 11, Harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and saw my work. Forty years was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. A lesson to learn for all of us who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ comes in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, where it is written, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is a lesson for Christians. We need to be very careful about our own hearts, how how easily they can become hardened Uh, as with a callous. With respect to the complaints of the Jews that we see in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 14 about the, the pagan nations, one of the commentators has rightly pointed out that they were reacting to unfavorable circumstances not by questioning what was wrong with themselves but by complaining against God. That is a self-righteous attitude and it proceeds from hearts that have not repented before God. It describes all who have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, all who have not trusted in him as their saviour from sin. They do not consider their own sinful ways. Instead, they only see the sins of others, they only moan about others, they only point the finger at others. Sad to say that born-again Christians can also be guilty of that kind of behaviour. As such, the Lord Jesus Christ said, not to the ungodly, but to his disciples, in other words, to Christians, Jesus said, judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, 
and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote or the, uh, the, 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 the bit of sawdust that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? By the way, that's not Jesus telling us that we're not allowed to make judgments. We make judgments every, all, all day long, every day. We, when we make decisions, we're making judgments. We do that. This is about being a hypocrite. Jesus warns us about being hypocrites. Spurgeon pointed out that Jesus is gentle, but he calls that, that man a hypocrite who fusses about small things in others and pays no attention to great matters at home in his own person. Christians can just as easily judge and condemn others and pay no attention to the sin in their own lives, just like the Jews that we're reading about in the book of Malachi. Look at verse 14. Ye have said it is vain to serve God, And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? All the great things that the Jews imagined in their wicked hearts that they had wasted their time doing was nothing more than a figment of their vain imaginations. When you look at the words uh, of verse 14 there, they said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? Do you remember anything of what we were considering last week about keeping ordinance, the Jews keeping ordinances? Official orders coming from God. It simply wasn't true that they had kept his ordinance. They had not kept God's ordinance. Look at verse 7 again, where the Lord said to them, Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. That was in verse 7. That's the Lord speaking to them there. Ye have not kept my ordinances. And yet in verse 14, they're moaning and saying, what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? Who are we to believe there? The Lord in verse 7 or the moaning Jews in verse 14. I know who I'm going to believe there. God who cannot lie. Also in verse 14 they said, We have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. That's a reference to sorrow for sin. But there was no real brokenness, no real contrition in them. No brokenness of heart, just a hardness of heart. All that walking mournfully, it was just a big show for everyone to see. If there had been genuine repentance, then there would have been no need for the Lord to say in verse 7, return unto me and I will return unto you, when the Lord called on them to repent. Would have been no need for it if they were truly repentant before God, if they were truly mournful before God. As for what motivated the Jews in their disservice, not their service, their disservice to God and their empty worship, it was profit. They said in verse 14, it is vain to serve God and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? 
Alas, as far as they were concerned, there was no profit in serving God and keeping his ordinance because they fared no better than those sinful Gentiles. In fact, as far as they were concerned, the Gentiles fared better than them. So, what's the point? Actually, as God's old covenant people, the Jews had been greatly blessed and favoured by God. They had received much in the way of material and earthly blessings. However, in return, they rebelled against the Lord time and time again, forsaking him, the fountain of living water, and digging for themselves those broken systems that can hold no water, turning from the living God and worshipping the idols, the worthless idols of the pagan nations. That's how they repaid God. They were greatly blessed though. As again, even in verse 7, we see God calling on them to repent. To say that God was long-suffering with the Jews would be an understatement. To say that God is long-suffering with any of us would be an understatement. As for you, born-again Christians, what profit do you expect to receive in service to Jesus? Being a Christian is not about returning a profit. In fact, you're more likely to suffer loss than make a profit in this world if you belong to Jesus and if you serve him in obedience Jesus had quite a lot to say on the subject. He said, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying yourself does not mean denying yourself chocolates at Lent or not eating from that tube of Pringles. That's not denying yourself. But it does mean renouncing and disassociating from selfish desires and from self-promotion. As a new creature in Christ, it ought to be your desire, your heart's desire, to follow Jesus in obedience and to exalt and glorify him. And it may well result in loss in this world and it may result in you being Beaten physically, it may even result in you being put to death. I'm not saying that we do glorify God, but that ought to be our desire. At least when you start the day, you start the day with a desire to serve God and you pray to God that with his enabling, that you would do that which is pleasing in his sight because you are children of the of the living God and you want to do that which is pleasing to your heavenly father. It's not about making a profit though, is it? The apostle Paul was a Christian who denied himself. He said, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them dung that I may win Christ similarly the hymn writer wrote 
All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now compared to this, knowing you, Jesus. And then there is that other hymn with the words, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Hymns like that are sung in churches across the world, including our church, including this evening at our church. But I wonder... Do we really mean the words that we sing there? Do you mean it? Do I mean it? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. And to have Jesus, is he really the greatest treasure? Because if he is, then you're certainly not out to make a profit in, uh, as a Christian. When you've got treasures in heaven. doesn't make sense. Let's have a look at verse 15. And now we call the proud happy, yea, they, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Not only did the Jews see themselves as not profiting, they saw the ungodly Gentiles as being blessed by God, even though they were proud. In other words, they were arrogant and presumptuous. This is how the Jews saw them, proud, arrogant, presumptuous and they saw them as being blessed by God the Jews were not wrong in calling those Gentile nations proud after all it is only a genuine faith in Jesus I'm speaking about now um, it's only a genuine faith in Jesus that humbles anyone it's a big generalisation this but it's also accurate to say Anybody who has not bowed the knee to Jesus is not humble. There is no humility. Humility starts when a person receives Jesus as their saviour from sin. Because the, the opposite to that is somebody thinking, I don't need Jesus. That great overture of love, God sending his own son into this world to suffer, to bleed and to die on the cross. Not for me. Don't need any of that stuff. Humility starts when you come to the cross of Jesus as a repentant sinner. Although humility is often attributed to various people, even people who are not trusting God, you may be able to think of some famous people perhaps who have done some wonderful things, and, and perhaps the whole world knows about it, the, the, the great humility of these people, if they are not trusting in Jesus as their saviour, they are not humble. They really aren't. You, no one is humble if he hasn't cast himself upon the mercy of God. To be truly humble, your heart of stone needs to be taken away by God. It needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh from which you say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. 
foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. However, the Jews were wrong to say that they, that they, that is the Gentiles, um, that tempt God are even delivered. In other words, that the ungodly get away with it. They were right about the pride of the Gentiles, but they were wrong about the Gentiles, the ungodly, getting away with it. That isn't true. The wages of sin is death. It's not just the Jews of old that imagine that the ungodly get away with their sins and with their wickedness. Even godly people, even Christians with a genuine faith in Jesus sometimes make the mistake of imagining that the wicked prosper and that they actually get away with it. For example, we looked at Psalm 73 earlier on. I don't know if you were really concentrating on that psalm when I was reading it. In Psalm 73, the psalmist became jealous of foolish and wicked people. Now, the psalmist was a man of God. Even so, in verse 3, he said, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How ridiculous is that? Recognising people for what they are, foolish and wicked, but still envying them. Why would you want to envy someone who you see to be, rightly see to be foolish and wicked? But that's how it it was with the psalmist. Just like the Jews in the book of Malachi, in verse 13 of Psalm 73, the psalmist also declared that he had kept himself pure for no purpose, that his faith was in vain. It was a waste of time. I can only imagine that as a godly man with a genuine faith in God, he must have been going through a major spiritual crisis at that time to be jealous of people who were perishing in their sin. However, by the grace of God, the psalmist came to his senses And by the time you get to verse 18, this is where things turn in Psalm 73, when he comes to his senses. And you can see that he once again saw the ungodly as they really are. Not as people who prospered, but people who have been set by God in slippery places and cast down into destruction. In verse 25 the psalmist's focus was once again where it should be, on God, and not on himself, and not on the ungodly. When he said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire apart from thee. Lovely words, that. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Finally, we've been considering people who benefited, not just a little bit, but greatly from being God's old covenant people. For unto the Jews were committed the oracles of God. Of all the nations in the world, the Lord chose them to be his peculiar people. To them were given the prophecies and the law which speak of God and his plan of salvation and his promise to send the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They received all of those things long before anyone else. 
God gave to the Jews a land flowing with milk and honey, whilst all the other nations worshipped worthless idols. The Lord was their God. And yet for all that, they did not keep the ordinance of the Lord, and they spoke to God with stout or harsh words. Clearly they had no godly fear, no reverence for the Lord of hosts, They were faithless and all they thought to do was accuse God of showing favouritism to the pagans whom God had set in slippery places and cast them down into destruction. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, if you, a hell-deserving sinner, have been redeemed from the curse of the law by the precious blood of Christ, and you have been adopted by God as his child, then don't even think to whine about what you might see as the prosperity of those who perish. Don't argue with God. Don't get angry with God. How often have I heard Christians moaning about God? Being angry with God. I don't get it. Maybe after the service someone can explain it to me if you want to. I do not get it that anyone, any any creature should get angry with God. And I most certainly don't get it that Christians should get angry with God. These people were getting angry with God, giving him back chat with stout words. That kind of thing shouldn't happen and it most certainly should never happen with the Lord's people. Rather serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, for God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all who are about him. If you want to make a profit, well, it's far more profitable to turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Last of all, if you are someone who has no concern for God, no interest in the Saviour's blood that was shed for sinners, perhaps you even have stout words for God, who you claim not to believe in, How often have I heard that as well? People who don't believe in God, moaning about God, waving their fists towards heaven. Don't imagine that God turns a blind eye to your sin. It is given unto all of us once to die and then the judgment. Therefore, repent, believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus as your saviour from sin and you will be saved. Amen. Let's finish with 646. 646. Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise, that my whole being may proclaim thy being and thy ways.